the servant of the Lord. And, and there's this series of songs about the servant. And when we get to the end of chapter 52, we reach the climax song, uh, the song that bears out what the servant is really there to do. And uh, we're beginning at verse 13, where the Lord says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they had not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that they should look at him and no beauty that they should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We have your word, your word that is true, your word that is powerful your word that accomplishes its purpose. And we ask again that you would do that now. Teach us by your spirit. Inform us, conform us into the image of your son. We pray in his name, amen. So will that be enough? Do I have enough? Uh, it's a question we're asking all the time. Do I have enough time? Do I have enough energy? Do I have enough money to pay the bills? Do I have the car that I need that will suit me? Uh, is the gift that I've gotten that special someone enough to make him or her feel special? 
Uh, we're asking some form of this question all the time. Uh, in the last few weeks, though, uh, the question has changed its tenor a little bit. Uh, am I going to be able to find enough toilet paper? Am I going to be able to have the medicine that I need? Am I going to be safe? Uh, is, is there really enough? Is there enough out there to cover my needs? Do we have our limits exceeded? Are we enough? And what we're seeing, maybe more starkly than most of us have experienced in our lifetimes, is that we're finite, that we're limited, uh, that suddenly we find out that we're not enough, that our society may not be enough, our supply chain may not be enough, our doctors may not be enough. All the resources that we thought were there, they may not be enough. And when we start thinking more deeply, um, it's not just COVID-19, and this isn't a doomsday sermon. Uh, but when I realize I'm finite, that I have my limits, then the question of, do I measure up? Am I enough? Becomes even this bigger question. Am I enough in my goodness? Am I enough in my obedience? Am I enough with my efforts? Am I enough to fix my relationships? Am I enough that people will accept me and that they will love me? And when we come to our passage, we find out that we're not enough. We aren't enough and we're not going to be. Uh, but there's good news. Uh, the person that we find in this passage, this servant, he is enough. Uh, this servant that we come across is Jesus. And though we aren't enough, he is. Uh, as I was saying, in Isaiah 42, we're introduced to this, this strange figure, and it's a little bit fuzzy. Who is he, this servant? And uh, it's... It looks like maybe he is Israel, and yet he's not Israel. Uh, Israel has its failings, and, and the Lord will turn from speaking well of the servant to judging his people. And, and so though we see these parallels, we find out this isn't really Jesus, uh, or excuse me, that the servant isn't really Israel, uh, or rather it's true Israel. The servant is Jesus. And as we get to the New Testament, if, if the imagery in this passage weren't enough, the New Testament seven times explicitly points at this passage and says, this is actually about Jesus. Uh, in Romans and in John and in Luke and in 1 Peter. And throughout the New Testament, we're seeing these references saying, this person that we found in Isaiah 53 is Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, it comes up. Philip has been sent out into the desert and comes across an Ethiopian in a chariot reading a scroll. And he gets up and finds out what the Ethiopian is reading. And uh, in verse 32, it says this. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
That's from chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This passage was about Jesus. Uh, In Luke 22, uh, the night that Jesus is betrayed, uh, he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes from Isaiah. And he says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus himself saying, Take a look at what's going on here. I am this servant. And knowing that, we look at chapter 53, and this is the Old Testament putting words to the crucifixion. And it is the Old Testament saying, This is what God is doing, this is what God is providing. You may not be enough but I'm providing someone for you who is. Uh, Theologian Christopher Wright talks about this, uh, and and he says that Jesus, in his baptism, uh, he says, my loved one in whom I delight is an echo that we have from the first of the servant songs. And he says that it's the opening of a series of songs about one called the servant of the Lord. He is introduced rather like a king, but as the songs develop, it becomes clear that he, will be, that he will accomplish his calling, not by kingly power as we know it, but through frustration, suffering, rejection, and death. By willingly paying the cost, however, the servant will not only, be, not only bring restoration to Israel, but also be the instrument of bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And God through his servant Jesus. And Isaiah 53 shows us how Jesus is enough for us to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And in two particular ways, he tells us that Jesus is enough. He's enough to cover my guilt, to cover our guilt. And he's also enough, he's sufficient for our shame and suffering. So first, taking a look at Jesus as sufficient for our guilt. Uh, it's, it's just riddled through the passage. Uh, in chapter 52, verses, verse 12, it says, He sprinkles mankind. And this sprinkling is this idea of cleansing. It's the Old Testament imagery that sprinkling can be done with blood or water or oil. But what it does is it comes and it makes clean. It takes guilt away. In Verse 5 of chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He's taking that guilt away. Verse 6 says, if we think we're not guilty, if we think that we are enough, God doesn't agree with that self-assessment. That all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And and this gets at this beautiful teaching that we find in the scriptures of what the theologians call imputation. Of God taking guilt off of us and placing it on Jesus. And him 
going to the cross with that and paying the full price. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The passage goes on. Uh, verse 8, he's cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Verse 10, he's an offering for guilt. What is it he's doing? He's, he's taking our filth. He's taking the way in which I exalt myself and I love myself and I want to see myself at the center of everything. He's taking the horrid thoughts that come out of me and the wretched desires. He's taking my terrible decisions. He's taking away my wicked words. He's taking away my inability to repair any of that. And he's placing it on Jesus. In verse 11, it says, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Uh, theologian John Murray writes it this way, Christ satisfied justice. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He made sin, he was made sin, and he was made a curse. He bore our iniquities. He bore the unrelieved and unmitigated damnation of sin, and he finished it. That is the spectacle that confronts us in Gethsemane and Calvary. That Jesus there went, and where we don't measure up, he did, and he paid it all. And this means that there is no longer any guilt. There's no longer any condemnation. Don't need to worry that God is angry with me. I don't need to worry that there's something left out there that I have to go fix for him to be able to accept me. I don't need to worry that there's still payment due. I don't need to think as superstitiously we might that there are all these good things I have to go do to get God on my side or for me to get on his good side. God has already punished my sin in Jesus. And he's not going to charge double. The guilt is removed. The guilt is gone. And that gives freedom. The scriptures do demand something of us. They say, turn to him. Repent. Confess your guilt before the Lord. Trust in him. Cry out to him in faith, and he will forgive. And all that you've done, every last bit, the deepest, darkest secret, is taken away and placed on Christ on the cross. And we need to cry to him. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter's quoting again from Isaiah 53. And he says of Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And there's the question. Have you submitted yourself to the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Have you called out to him, begging forgiveness? 
He's good and he's loving and he will do it. He takes your guilt away. But not just your guilt. Jesus is also enough for your suffering and for your shame. Again, going through the passage quickly now. In 52.14, we see a Jesus who is disfigured. In chapter 53, verse 2, that he's not attractive. There, there's no beauty about him. In verse 3, he's rejected and despised. In verse 4, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And in Matthew chapter 8, we find out a little bit more that unpacks what this really means for us. That we, we see these griefs and we're like, what, what are these griefs? And in Matthew 8, we see a series of healings where Jesus reaches out and heals a leper. And then he heals a centurion's servant. And then he goes and is healing many. And it says in verse 14, when he entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, our griefs, and bore our diseases. Jesus has entered in, and he is taking our suffering, and he's taking the shame that comes with it. In verse 5, he's pierced, he's crushed, he's wounded. Verse 7, he's oppressed, he's afflicted. He's experiencing all manner of suffering and all the shame that comes with it. All of that that would make us say that we are nothing, that we are unworthy. Verse 9, his grave is with the wicked. Shame is assigned to him. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And in verse 11, there's this anguish in his soul. And Jesus did that to show us that in him, he is enough for our suffering and our shame. Scriptures don't promise us that we won't suffer. Quite the contrary, they say that we will. But they tell us that the Jesus who is with us in the suffering is enough. That he has taken away the shame, he's laid it on himself and as we are in the midst of the suffering, as we are in the midst of the uncertainty, as we're in the midst right now of our finiteness and knowing that we aren't enough, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is. And it, it makes it clear because the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end in suffering. The story doesn't end in shame. The story ends with the servant being vindicated. Uh, it's, it's riddled again throughout the passage, but when we get to the end, it's where we see that in verse 10, that speaking of the servant who has been crushed and who has died, and yet he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Even in the midst of pouring out his soul to death, we see that he has life after that. Because our Jesus is not dead. He went to the cross and he paid for everything. And then he rose again. And that's why now 
Isaiah changes its tune. We turn to chapter 54, and it's a song, and it's celebration, and we get to chapter 55, and it's an invitation. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Our Jesus is enough, and he bids you come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is enough. I don't measure up. We don't. But Jesus does. Thank you that you sent him to die in our place, that you sent him to show us what love is, laying down one's life for his friends, and that our Jesus, for that joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. Let us live in him. Amen.